to the joyride podcast john is my name and ian is my name and i appreciate that ian you're being slightly more somber than me i was a little bit too upbeat mm. um i don't know if it's fair to say we're a nation in mourning um there's a family in the nation that's in mourning yes rightly so um i'm not sure really whether the nation's in mourning what do you think um Looking at my timeline on Twitter and Facebook, I don't get the impression we're a nation of mourning. I think we're a nation who are mourning the fact that the BBC are not showing normal programmes. That seems to be the main thing that folk are mourning about. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's people of a, a certain generation. Yes. I think, I think our generation and younger are thinking. Yes. But I think even older people who are maybe more inclined to be royalists because you and i are not particularly royalist in our outlook in life um but i think even older folk who like the royal family and have a soft spot for them would think that dedicating every single bbc channel for a couple of days i mean they're not doing it now but certainly on friday and summer saturday all the bbc channels the bbc one bbc two the regional bbc channels even the gaelic channel we're all basically showing the same news stream and the bbc news channel as well the bbc parliament channel all the BBC channels were basically showing the same thing. And it was just someone in the studio talking to either Nicholas Witchell again and again, or to royal experts and talking about the same stuff. Um, and, yeah, and I think it's, it's difficult. I think one of the interesting things is that Prince Philip retired from royal duties, I think five or six years ago now. I might be, I might be exaggerating that. Um, it was certainly several years ago he retired from royal duties. And also, he's the same age as my grandfather, almost. My grandfather's a couple of years younger than him. So he's, he's a far removed generational figure from us. I only remember him as an old man. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that what's interesting is that for a large number of our generation and younger, our understanding of who Prince Philip is, is largely based on the crown. Mm-hmm. there's two things there's the because he was only ever in the newspapers as an individual as yeah. opposed to standing next to the queen he was only in the newspapers because he would have said some um inappropriate phrase when on a royal tour um to um the often the indigenous people of whichever country we had colonized mm-hmm. 150 years ago um and he said something culturally inappropriate to them and it was gaff prone you know, Prince Philip, or he used to be an expert and um, an expert um, carriage rider. <laughs> he was like, uh, he was like, even into his 70s and 80s, he was still competitively carriage riding. They were, showing, they were showing videos. Of, it was like, it was like a posh version of Kickstart that we used to watch as kids. Remember Kickstart, where you get kids on like rubbishy little motorbikes going around an assault course? Well, they were showing videos of the BBC Sports thing, and it was him going around one of these muddy assault courses on a small, like with a small carriage and horse. I thought it was interesting that even the sport, like even the BBC Sports app, the sports website, 
their main story was Prince Philip's sporting achievements. That was the, well, that was the main thing. Sky Sports News app. That was the the first two stories were both about Prince Philip. The Sky Sports News app. I mean, they don't. They don't... I thought that was a safe haven because I was waiting for my football team. Hearts were playing on Friday night, and I thought at least if I go to the sports app. That's a pretty safe. Not that I'm, I'm nothing against Prince Philip at all, and obviously it's sad when anyone dies. But I didn't want the wall to wall. I didn't want to listen to Nicholas Witchell and his sycophancy for hours on end, which is what it was. I mean, that is what Nicholas Witchell. Nicholas Witchell used to be a very respected newsreader. Now he is just a sort of sycophant for the royal family. That's what he is. It used to be Jenny Bond. Now it's Nicholas Witchell. And I thought if I go to the sports channel or the sports app or anything like that that'll be a safe haven. But no, even the sports coverage was commandeered. My football game that I wanted to watch on Friday night, a game that was moved to 7.45 on a Friday night so it could be live on telly, even that got cancelled from the television. You could watch it on your phone, on the sports app or on iPlayer, but that got cancelled. And it's I think it's those things that have irked a lot of people. People who's who, who may very well be quite sad at the passing of Prince Philip, but who have other priorities, like watching football matches. I mean, that, the, the big chat yesterday was, is Line of Duty going to be on on Sunday night? And people were preparing to riot if Line of Duty was going to... Never mind what's going on in Belfast right now. Mm. I think I think it would be small fry compared to if they were to cancel Line of Duty for, for one week. We'd all be marching dressed as Ted Hastings and firebombing all vehicles that went past us, shouting, here, laddie, hey, get the television program back on, laddie, chucking stuff. Well, we would have had to have, um, and this isn't a plot spoiler to anyone who's watching Line of Duty, but we would have had to have somehow um, changed um, Hastings' wonderful sentence from last week of the name's Hastings Mom <laughs> and the epitome of an old battle. Somehow putting that into a chant that we could have done as we as we marched. I do think, though, that, that it's showing us as well that um, lockdown has done strange things to us. Because really, it's not a big deal that the TV schedules are taking over for two days, but it does seem to mean a lot. It yeah. does seem to mean a lot. I remember, I mean, I suppose it's different, isn't it? I remember Princess Diana dying and everything blacking out. Yes. Everything uh, being a blackout for, for a couple of days. But because it was the shock of the fact that someone, well, younger than us now, um, had passed away in, in such a violent and, and um, surprising manner, um, meant that that somehow resonated um, and it made sense that the, the world was slightly out of kilter. Um, I don't remember the Queen Mother's passing other than certainly on BBC One at, and I'm sure it was around tea time, I wanted to watch something. I switched on the television expecting to see something and it was... Um, footage of the royal family walking past her her um, lying in, what do they call it when you're lying in state in or state. whatever it is, yeah, when people yeah. file past the coffin. Um, and that was on instead of normal telly and I didn't really appreciate that because I wanted to watch something. But yeah, it's, it's odd. And one of the things is I, I was listening to another podcast um, this week um, and I couldn't listen to the whole thing because <laughs> politics and such things just depresses me to a large extent um, at the moment but um, it said that Boris Johnson is a lucky general and I can't help feeling that he is 
in the sense that we're opening up this week. So you're going to get the only two stories you're going to have in the news for the whole week will be the positive, happy news stories about um, people like shops being able to open and pub people being outside, outside of pubs, um, you know, having a drink on a picnic table um, and every single newspaper and te television channel wrapping themselves in the flag because Prince, Will Prince Philip has died, um, which gives him another easy week. Um, and I think that that's interesting because I've just finished reading the, the, the paper there, the news section of the Sunday newspaper. Um, and when you drill down, we've got Northern Ireland, which is an issue. We've got the fact that there are several areas of the UK whose coronavirus rates are really too high mm. to open up, or England anyway, and yet we're opening up. We've got slight, slight delays to the vaccine. We've got the fact that uh, David Cameron and Rishi Sunak and Matt Hancock are all embroiled in some kind of sleaze that um, isn't, isn't particularly good for any government if it's focused upon. Um, and we've also got the fact that quietly going on in the background, France and Germany fully expect to have vaccinated all of their adult population by the end of the summer. Yeah. Which is when we expect to have vaccinated all of our adult population. So when it gets to it, they'll pretty much finish at the same time as us. Yeah. Which for all the hoopla about how we're doing better than everybody else. If Europe does get, or certainly France and Germany, nobody really cares what the rates of Luxembourg are in terms of vaccinations. If France and Germany get to the same point we are by the end, by the summer. Yeah, and the, then, there's obviously all the story this week as well about the AstraZeneca vaccine. That's going to slow things down. Inevitably, people are going to be, they've announced that they're not going to give it to under 30s. So people in their 30s and 40s are probably going to look at that and think, well, hang on, if it's not, if they're saying it's probably not worth the risk for a 30-year-old taking it, I'm 35, why would I take it? I'm 42, I'm not going to take it. That's going to yeah. be a risk. Because those other, countries are, those other countries are not relying on the AstraZeneca vaccine like we are. Oh, oh, although, have you noticed what you're calling it? Sorry, the Oxford vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> we, I do believe we called it the Oxford vaccine. It was. That's, it's funny. Yeah, it was. Yeah, at the start, the Oxford vaccine was amazing. You know, everybody was talking about the Oxford vaccine. It was the, it was the, the it was saving the world basically. The Oxford vaccine, this, this this vaccination, this vaccine that was made in Oxford by Oxford scientists, British scientists, Oxford science, and now we're calling it the AstraZeneca one again. It's not Oxford. Oxford was just they just they just like put it in the bottle. They didn't actually do anything. They were just like the <laughs> bottling plant. There's no coincidence that AstraZeneca sounds Latin and therefore sounds European. It sounds foreign, yes. It sounds very foreign, yeah. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, it's. I think that, I mean, one of the other news stories that I read today was the fact that now 44% of the pop, well, 44% of an opinion poll, but 44% approve of the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Not just approve the vaccine, that's way higher, that's up at 75%. And rightly so at this point, you yeah. know, fair enough, you know. But 44% approve of their entire handling. That's 44% think 130,000 deaths is pretty good. 
I don't know, but it's the thing is, it's the last story that you heard, isn't it? It's the well, yeah. Vaccines as well. Yeah. Prince Philip got his vaccine. Now he's dead. Uh, I just coming back to Prince Philip very quickly. I bookmarked this because I wanted to read it to you. It's my favourite response to Prince Philip's death on Friday was from the Scottish Green Party. It's quite possibly the most, it's just, I would say it's kind of like the chilliest response. It's not unpleasant. I mean, the Green Party are, they, they, are, they make no bones about being a Republican party. They, they do not want a royal family. Um, and the Greens are you know, quite a sort of gentle, softly spoken. It's not offensive. It's not unpleasant. But just, right. it's, it's very passive aggressive. I like this. So I bookmarked this for you so I could read it to you. I, I can't do a Patrick Harvey. I, I mean, Patrick Harvey sounds a bit like me anyway, so I don't really, like, I can just right. do my own voice. So here we are. Here's the response. Just after they announced that Prince Philip had died. We recognise that the passing of the Duke of Edinburgh will be felt deeply by some across the country and express our sympathies with his family who join many others who have also lost loved ones in the last year. End of statement. I like that. I mean, to be fair, it's the most honest and accurate statement. It's brilliant. And I, I just thought that was really good. Um, I think they've actually taken it down now, but I've kept it because I, I screenshot it. I was like, I like that. That's, yeah. it's, it's cold, but it's not offensively cold. And it's very accurate. And it's, that's the thing. A lot of people were saying, we're going to spend more time mourning a 99-year-old privileged man who's passed away than we are the 130,000 folk that have died unnecessarily of COVID in the last year. We're dedicating days of television coverage. I mean, you and I are talking about this now in our podcast. Loads of people are talking about Prince Philip's death. And people are not talking about the 130,000 folk that died in the last year because of, no. partially because of the government incompetence that 45% of people in the UK think is not incompetence, that it's actually really good. And I think that that's, that's, that's the fear is that, and it's always going to be the fear because our constitution, because we don't have one, we don't have a written constitution. So therefore our country, whatever runs on norms, it runs on, um, it runs on people playing by the rules of the game because no one enforces those rules. So you just have to trust. Like, for example, and I don't know whether the investigation's even going to be had in the first place, probably not, because the person that can initiate an investigation, I think, is Boris Johnson yeah. to see whether someone's broken the ministerial code. But Rishi Sunak's texts to David Cameron about this, um, basically, David Cameron was an investor or slash paid by a company called Greensill to um, basically lobby the government. That's really all his, mm. all he can do. He doesn't have skills in the finance area. So it's about um, basically lobbying people in positions of power to get what their Greensill company want. Um, the head of Greensill was an, was an integral part of Cameron's inner circle whilst he was um, prime minister. And the green cell was in financial difficulties. And so he was lobbying the government, texting. And that, that, that concerns me because texting, it should have been emailing because emails, there's a, there's a, there's a trail. Yeah. You know, you can go back to the computer, sorry, the government servers, maybe not this government, because let's be honest, they're never going to really look too much into it. But a future government, can look, go back to an email trail and find out who said what to whom at one point. Now, it might be a vindictive labour witch hunt, 
maybe, in future years that would do that, but there would be a record. Texts, there's no record. There's no official record anyway. And David Cameron was texting Rishi Sunak, sort of campaigning for Rishi Sunak to, you know, do what's right by Greensill, in inverted commas. Do you think, and, do you think David Cameron had one of those burner phones that Kelly McDonald had in line of duty last week? I really hope so. I really hope he was doing all I like. I, I love the image of David Cameron sitting in his Land Rover. Um, and when the news story broke this week, he was just pounding the windows, screaming in his posh voice, like Kelly McDonald did in Line of Duty last week. Anyway, carry on, sorry. What I also hope, though, is that Man Matt Hancock and um, Rishi Sunak are kind of like the, the heads of OCGs that have about 12 different burner phones on their desk next to their official government phone, you know, and it pings up and one's from Cameron and one's from, I don't know, Osborne and one's from basically all these ex-Tory people they can go through. But yeah, uh, Cameron texted Sunak and Sunak texted him back, basically saying he was going to see what he could do. He was going to push Treasury officials, see whether this could ball work. It's, there's certainly questions to answer and therefore there should be a an inquiry to see whether someone broke the ministerial code. However, of course, as we proved with Priti Patel and also to a certain extent with Mr. Johnson himself, um, the person that ultimately decides if you've broken the ministerial code and you have to resign or be fired is the prime minister. Mm. Our country is run on norms and not on, on rules. And therefore, puts Boris Johnson in an incredibly strong position because one of the things I was thinking about the Northern Ireland riots, and again, we're not going to get too much into that because I don't know enough about unionist politics in Northern Ireland to be able to, to assess or judge why they're doing what they're doing. It does appear to be partly Brexit related mm -hmm. um, from what I can gather. I think it's interesting that it's unionists that are rioting. I think there might be a very different news response if it was Republicans rioting, I, I, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I do think that would be the case. But one of the interesting things is that the, not, the Republic of Ireland have asked if there can be bilateral talks between the UK government and, and the Republic of Ireland government. And our government are saying, nah, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. But we all know they're going to do it eventually. Mm -hmm. Just like we all know that they're going to lock down eventually, or we all know that they're going to be a, you know, a U-turn about school meals eventually. But the thing about it is what they've learned, and this is the point about a norms-based system as opposed to a rules-based system, is they know that when they eventually turn around and have the bilateral talks, in the Northern Ireland case, and they get the Northern Ireland secretary to stand on a podium, that podium in that room in Downing Street with all the flags behind them, they will sell it as them, they're doing the right thing. Mm. And all that will be remembered because every all the right-wing newspapers will essentially back them is that they've done the right thing. Yeah. You know, and, and that they've learned that that's what works. Look at the coronavirus situation, 44%, which I know is not yet 50, but the point is nearly you get don't knows. Yeah. So that 44% is all you need. They approve. And, and they know that, 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 that you just have to wait it out. Just wait it out, just wait it out. Wait till an opportune moment. I'm a, I, I, I'd be, to be honest, they're all saying there's gonna be an election in 2023. If the vaccine rollout continues as is, if the summer goes swimmingly and people especially allowed on foreign, foreign holidays, 
if England win the Euros, uh, which could happen, um, I I would bet there will be a general election in September, early September, before students go back mm. to um, students go back to campuses of university, and before we start this whole roadshow all over again, where basically lots of people get ill because students are all you know enjoying themselves. Yeah. That's quite a pessimistic outlook. Normally, I'm Mr. Optimism. No, I mean, I, I don't know. Every week we do this and we we kind of swither between pessimism and optimism. Where mm. I mean, there are reasons to be optimistic. The fact that things are opening up, you and I might be able to see each other for the first time in about 14 or 15 months and go to the cinema and have a meal. That might be possible in the coming yeah. weeks or months. But then you see news footage of other countries. I mean, it's the... the Brazil, the coverage of the, 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 I mean, obviously they're not talking about it now because Prince Philip doesn't really have any connections to Brazil, but the situation in Brazil is really quite concerning. When you see the number of people and the, this strain that's running rampant through Brazil who couldn't afford to vaccinate in the numbers that we've done, um, that is concerning because the, the, the Brazil borders are about nine countries, all of which are countries that are not banned from coming here. Um, and I mean, our, I don't even know what the situation is just now with our borders. I mean, they, they seem to be shutting the borders down to some countries, but not very many. Certainly, we've talked about that before as well, that they've not shut our borders down to the countries that we should be shutting them down to. Um, I mean, I said to you before, like, if Boris Johnson had been in charge of building the Berlin Wall, he would have built it out of custard and jelly, probably. Because that's what it feels like. It feels like our borders around the UK are just, it's custard and jelly that's keeping, that's all he's using. But there the would be custard. There would be British custard. I was going to say, so long as the custard has a Union Jack in the packaging and it's the best of British, I mean, that's what Boris, you know, Keir Starmer would say like, well, if you've, uh, if you've put custard and jelly on the borders, it's, it's not very good, is it, Prime Minister? It's not good at all. And then Boris was like, oh, doesn't like British custard. Well, you say that he's unfaithful to the British people. British, he's saying boo to the British custard and boo to the British jelly, and that's and then the media would be like Keir Starmer anti British because he doesn't like British custard and Brit not that you know they wouldn't report, yeah, custard and jelly is a really bad thing to make your borders out of. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm saying this as if this actually happened, but it is metaphorically, this is what's happened. If Boris was to build a like, a, 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 if he went to Dover and he put like a huge big sort of custard ring to stop people getting over from France. Eventually, the, the media would twist that into, yeah, but he, he used British custard. Jobs for British people, it's British custard. Why is Keir Starmer ashamed of being British? Because that is British custard and British jelly that's out there protecting our people from those immigrants coming over here. And do you know, one of the, one of the interesting things, I think, is that, and it's, it's come, I'm sure it's only come about in the last five years, Theresa May benefited from it hugely, and Boris has benefited from more than any prime minister in our history, which is that, and I'm going to continue your jelly and custard um, analogy is that so many people would say, well, I don't really know how you solve this border problem. And, you know, I wouldn't like to be in that position. And it's good that he's doing something. Yeah, It's good that he's trying. To, I mean, it's good that now he's doing something. At least now he's doing something. Would you like that job? I mean, do you know how to fix it? And I'm like, that's the what? Because when did that happen? Like, no, that's Churchill, always that's always the case. I mean, th Churchill there's always <laughs> won a war. People weren't going, "Oh, bless his cotton socks." I wouldn't like to be in his position. I mean, what's he supposed to do? And then Attlee rebuilt the country after the war, and people weren't going, "Oh, 
you know, they voted Churchill out mm. because they didn't, and then they voted Attlee out, mm. even though Churchill won a war and Attlee rebuilt the country. People weren't going, Oh, he's oh, done his best. It's, oh, he's doing his bad. I mean, it's how hard is it for him? I mean, he's it does seem, wild. yeah, but it does seem to be. I, I don't think Cameron got that, but it's, something seems to have happened in this sort of transfer between David Cameron and Theresa May, where with the Brexit negotiations, that there was a lot of sympathy for Theresa May. You know, like yeah. I mean, it's a really difficult situation. Like, you know, would you want that job? I mean, there is no right solution, only a really difficult solution. And now with like, Boris, it's like you, you, they, they do vox pops in the streets. It's all very much like, well, you know, he's doing the best he can. People really should go off his back. Is that? I mean, it's like we've got a four-year-old for a prime minister. Like he's done the best he can. That's the kind of thing you do when you're like a four-year-old does a drawing. You're like, well, it's the best he can manage because he's a four-year-old. I mean, if you think about Cameron for a second, and yes, he messed up hugely, but David Cameron came into Downing Street in 2010 in the midst of the worst financial crash since since 1929. He then. But he didn't even have a majority. So he had to do it as a coalition with a different party as well. Whilst at the same time, there was the Olympics, which could easily go wrong, and that would be an absolute nightmare. There was an awful lot on his plate. And yet, no one offered him that level of sympathy. When all the Brexit headbangers yeah. were going mad in his party, it wasn't like, oh, how is he supposed to cope with this? It's just a difficult, it's impossible for him. It wasn't. It was like, well, he needs to somehow pacify them. He needs to pacify the country. He needs to pacify the European Union. He needs to get all of these things right because that's what we expect of a prime minister. Mm -hmm. And then the Brexit vote happened. Yeah. And we don't expect anything of anyone. Like Keir Starmer is, is I mean, you just did his voice there. <laughs> and that kind of sums it up. And, and to be fair, I mean, I, d I don't sure I ever heard him speak that much during the whole Brexit time. No, no, no. I think I, I read about him, but I didn't necessarily hear him speaking that often. And he's just so vanilla. Yes. It's untrue. Um, it's, it's, it, it, it's that, when you watch, I mean, it's even we've talked about Ed Miliband, watching Ed Miliband just having fun, taking the rip out of Boris. You miss that. Or watching the select committee and watching somebody like Yvette Cooper absolutely rip through whoever she's talking to. And you think that's what you need that type of mind, that type of person, that type of personality who is just going to not, yeah, being forensic is great. But when you're up against a man who's also made of custard and jelly, you need more than a forensic mind. You need to like hit through. You need to actually play him at his game. You know, Cameron was a showman. Boris is a different, I mean, he's more of a clown than a showman, but he is still a showman. And then you've yeah. got Keir Starmer with this meticulous legal mind, this forensic mind. That he, and Boris has turned that into a pejorative, going like, oh, his forensic mind, oh, he's a lawyer, oh, he's, a, he's a top QC, oh, he's a lawyer. And you're like, how have you, you're an absolute oaf. You've cheated on every wife you've ever had. You've done all kinds of really questionable and illegal things. And you've managed to turn the fact that he is a very highly respected QC, that is seen as a diss. That's his like number one diss. That man's a lawyer. That man's really intelligent. That man knows his briefings and he knows his facts. Ooh. And that's but, but that's the that's that's fine. The media of like yeah, go Boris. And the, the problem is it's fine knowing your brief, it's fine knowing the facts, but if you don't have a vision, if you don't have some you don't look at here's that like Tony Blair, for all his faults, 
Well, no, not for all his faults, actually, because 1994 to 1997, Tony Blair, i.e. the leader of the opposition, Tony Blair, you looked at him and you were like, I, you just looked at him or you spent five minutes listening to him or five minutes reading the newspaper about him and you knew what vision he had of the country. And it might have been a relatively simplistic one of, I'm going to have a rebirth of this country. We're going to modernize this country. We're going to invest in our education. We're going to invest in our hospital. You know, like he had this five, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, card pledge, didn't he? Uh, five pledges on a card. And you knew like that, you were like, ah, I see his vision and I get it. Um, and at one point, I was just kind of thinking about, thinking there is that at one point, I'm sure Tony Blair, as prime minister, had opposite him on the opposition bench, David Cameron, very clear vision, very clear understanding of what he wanted to do with his party. Not, a, I mean, I didn't like it, but he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to do. You had Alex Salmond was the leader of the SNP in parliament at that point as well, I think. And you had Charles Kennedy as head of the Liberal Democrats, yeah. all facing Tony Blair. And Tony Blair somehow managed to win election after election with those people back, which again, kind of, you know, I mean, I'm no fan of Tony Blair, but when you look back, you're kind of like, he was good at what he did. Yes. You know, he, he might not have done good things, but he was good at what he did. Yeah. But yeah, the same in the same respect, you know, we're saying that Keir Starmer lacks, his direction and his vision is not clear. I think you could probably say the same for the actual government as well, though, because the Tory parties... <laughs> I mean, we've got an election next month in Scotland. We've had five letters and leaflets through from the Tory party. Every single one is basically, this is how we're going to stop an independence referendum. There's not one thing about why independence is bad, why being the UK is great. There's not one policy that the Tories are actually sort of offering to people of Scotland. They had a leaders debate last week, two weeks ago. Douglas Ross, the leader of the Conservatives, who's now been benched. They're going to have Ruth Davidson in the next one because he was so awful. Ruth Davidson, who's yeah. going to join the House of Lords in a couple of weeks' time. But all he did, every single time there was a question about racism or poverty, he kept coming back to, well, the SNP want an independence referendum, and we're going to stop them from having that. And that's all, that's all they've got. There is no vision. There is no positivity. And Boris's government, they just kind of stumble along from one scandal to the next, papering over the cracks several weeks after the cracks have already you know, destroyed the building they were in. Um, and they have no clear vision, but they're allowed to have no vision because the majority of the press and the media are on their side and don't report the cracks. They don't report the fact that the, the edifice has been crumbling for, you know, many, many years. But that you do need you do need somebody like Tony Blair. You need someone, I'm not saying you need Tony Blair, but you need someone who has clear vision, is quite charismatic. And is actually saying, look, this is what we are going to do. This is what we want for the country. I mean, it is, I'm going to use that phrase that you just said, but it's a difficult situation for Keir Starmer because you're in a national crisis and it maybe does seem unpatriotic for the opposition to be having a go during a time of national crisis. But when you're looking at the scale of ineptitude, it took far too long for Starmer to come out and actually say, this is rubbish, this is wrong, you messed up with that. He spent six months going, well, we're going to support the government. We're going to support the government because that's what people want us to do. You're, like, well, you're the opposition. You're not meant to oppose for the sake of it. But when you've got a government that's so crap at doing most things, that's when you expect a strong opposition to come in strong against them. And that, like your prediction of a, 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 an election this year, if England, even if England was, you know, get to the quarters or the semi-finals, 
remember the World Cup last time when England got like they were doing well, even though they didn't play a good team. All that coming home stuff was like it was everywhere. Um, if the if, if all the adults are, are vaccinated by the end of July and England do reasonably well in the Euros, I would not be surprised if they just go for it, go for it September October election, and they they might lose a few of the seats they've got, but they'll still have a huge majority for another five years. And I'm not sure about the the Tokyo. I don't know when the Tokyo Olympics happen, but if that is happening within this midst of our summer, I don't know. I don't know when it is, but if it's in the midst of our summer, and again, Team GB, uh, nothing makes me less patriotic than Team GB. But if Team GB were to win a load of medals, um, then again, and it's one of those things is that the nation because you, you can easily you can easily say we were elected in 2019 on to get Brexit done. We did that. We've now got you through a national pandemic. Now we need to reset. We need to reset and we need to go for the next five years because this is about us starting over. This is year zero. We're going to go. We're now out of Europe. We've sorted this pandemic. I mean, what more could you ever ask of a government than that? Let's move forward now into the future. You know, and with the Labour Party being as it is at the moment, the Liberal Democrats being nowhere, mm. Scotland being its own fiefdom and everyone. Scotland is essentially the same as Northern Ireland now. England does not care about its politics no, not because really. to a large extent it's, it's not in their business anymore. So mm. just like we, half the time we don't, we, you know, we're like, is it the, you know, is it the UVF? Is that a party from, from Northern Ireland? Is it the UDA? I mean, you know, you're getting them completely wrong because, you know, Ulster, Ulster, you, you ah, so that's, so that's why Boris Johnson keeps calling the SNP the Scottish Nationalists Party then. It's just an innocent gaff. He's, he's that's not, gaff. not deliberately using the word nationalist at all, right? We don't we don't understand the politics anymore down oh. here. We don't get it. Yeah, it's um, it is what I think that is. We're in a we're in a strange world now. Where it's only England and Wales because we you I mean we did it. We grew up for well, we're still at the age now, forty three years old, forty five years old. If there was a general election tomorrow. We wouldn't have the first idea whether Sinn Féin was going to win more more seats with the SDLP. No win more seats. I have no idea. You know, is it Ian Paisley's old party or is it David Trimble's old party that's the big one now? Mm. Who can say? But they're both dead, I think, or certainly <laughs> Ian Paisley is. They're both dead. Um, and so you're like, and, but Scotland is becoming that. So only England and Wales matters. And if you're going to be the leader of the Labour Party, you better be as good as Tony Blair is or was because otherwise, or as Harold Wilson was, or as Clement Attlee was, because they're the only three people that have won general elections. And certainly Blair benefited from Scotland, mm. having most of Scotland seats, but I think they would have still won anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, so, that's, that's the argument about Scotland, is that like our votes don't matter. They actually don't. I mean, <laughs> at that last election in 2019, if every single seat in Scotland had been Labour, it wouldn't have made, it wouldn't have made a difference. The, the Tories' majority would have been less, but they would still have had a majority of about 20 or 30. Wouldn't have made any difference at all. Nope. And that's the sad truth of the matter. Yeah. Um, and know. Wales, I don't know, even in Wales, there seems to be an, an increasing push. I think Plaid Cymru will start to see what the SNP are seeing up here, that people in Wales are probably more and more dissatisfied with what's going on in London as well. And Yeah, I think we're becoming more atomised, which is, is, you know... I mean, ultimately, like I say, is if I was living in Scotland and there was an independence vote, I would certainly vote independence. So, 
you know, it's well, why would we say not for the Welsh? Welsh as well. I mean, it's, it seems logical. Um, but anyway, listener, we'll come back to to all of this stuff next week. Um, we all I sometimes like to leave on a positive. Um, my positive for this week is that um, throughout the course of 2021, I've now read three novels by Liam McIlvanny, recommended by my good friend and colleague, Mr. Ian Wark. Um, and, um, and I have to say that um, they are probably the three best books I've read this year. I absolutely love them. Liam McIlvanny is, is a tremendous, more readable writer than his father, I would suggest. Um, he's probably the most talented of all the McIlvanny's. Yes. Which is saying something. Quaker, uh, the Quaker is his best. But I mean, they're, they're, they're all very readable. Um, mm. I don't know if he's better than Rankin. I'm, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, obviously, Rankin's got a much, he, he, Rankin's written a lot more books than McIlvanny. So at this point, you'd still say Rankin's probably the better writer. But you see the potential. I think the, be, the, the thing that helps for me is that uh, McIlvanny writes about Glasgow. Yes. And, um, I, I'm from the West Coast. And you therefore, like Glasgow much better than me in Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, and I also have that loyalty towards Glasgow. There's a better city than yeah. Edinburgh because it just is, because we used to go there when we were kids to go yeah. buy posters from Athena and <laughs> things like that. So, <laughs> that poster of the man with the baby. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's so, ironic that I'm so against Edinburgh when my football team is from Edinburgh. Well, that is weird. Yeah, that's true. I have, no, I have absolutely no affiliation with Edinburgh. I just picked... I've talked about this before so many times. I picked Hearts because of the badge when I was in primary three. That was it. <laughs> and I'm quite loyal when it comes to football. I've just, that's, you know, I supported Hearts when I was in primary three. I still support Hearts. Hearts and Liverpool were always my teams, a wee boy, and they are still my teams and they will be my teams until I die. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to become okay. like a, a Rangers fan or a Celtic fan or a Man City fan or any of these things. No I think you can only change by, you have to change before you go into primary five. Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. That's the cutoff point. That's, I mean, that's still a bit, I mean, that's the absolute latest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so high praise for Liam McIlvanny. The Quaker is his most recent novel. I'm just turning my head as I speak to Ian when I look at this. Um, All the Colours of the Town, I think, was his first novel. Um, and Where the Dead Men Go um, is another of his novels, uh, which I finished this week. Absolutely brilliant. Highly recommended. Anything for you to recommend, Ian? Stephen King. Stephen King, any, I mean, TV, film, anything going on? Um, i trying to think what I've watched, if I've watched anything. Well, I mean, I've read four Stephen King books this week, but you mean, I'm now on to, I think, 26 or 27 Stephen King books in 2021. Wow. Um, I'm trying to think if I've watched any good films this week. I don't think I have. Still haven't watched the full of the Justice League film, so I'm slowly making my way through that. Oh, don't waste your time. No, it's four hours. Oh. I could just watch four episodes of Fringe. Exactly, and I'm loving Fringe. Yeah, I've started, I'm saying that to you last week, I've started Fringe again at your suggestion. Mm. I think we should do a yeah, Fringe yeah. podcast. I, I would be up for it. Yeah. Love Fringe. Um, the Fringe podcast. Yes. So even if, listener, they take up the rest of our week with Prince Philip, then either on your Kindles or via, you know, um, independent bookshops, if you can get to them this week, if they're open, um, then go get yourself some Liam McIlvanny or go on Now TV and watch some French. Yeah. That's what we say. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.